I'm Chip Granditz. And I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, January 22nd, 2019. Coming up, we'll discuss how composting food and garden waste can help curb global warming, as well as improve soil and crop health. Our guests are Dan Mache of EcoCycle and Mark Easter, a soil ecologist at Colorado State University. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. The partial government shutdown is wreaking havoc all the way to the bottom of the world, as if hurtling hundreds of thousands of workers and their families into a financial and emotional tailspin weren't enough. You may have heard a recent study showing that the East Antarctic ice sheet, which has been considered relatively stable and thus largely insulated from the damage of climate change, is melting six times faster than previously thought. The implications for sea level rise are worrisomely huge. East Antarctica's ice sheet holds 10 times the ice of its West Antarctic ice sheet neighbor, which has been considered to be rapidly the which had been considered to be the rapidly melting neighbor to the west. Measuring ice in both the Arctic and Antarctica is the key mission of a decades-long aerial campaign of NASA known as IceBridge. But due to the government shutdown, IceBridge has had to shorten its spring deployment to at least half of the intended length, from eight weeks to four, according to IceBridge mission scientists. The Arctic campaign was slated to begin in early March from Thule Air Base in Greenland. Curtailing the mission jeopardizes a critical plan to collect a mix of data with a new ice monitoring satellite known as ICESat-2, that's short for Ice Cloud and Land Elevation Satellite. The recent spike in deaths from opioid overdose is staggering. In 2017 alone, almost 50,000 of the 72,000 overdose deaths in the U.S. were due to opioids. Most of the increase in deaths in the past five years is due to fentanyl, which is roughly 50 times more potent than heroin and morphine. Because fentanyl is produced cheaply in China and is increasingly being used to adulterate heroin, cocaine, and counterfeit prescription pills, these pills are pressed and dyed to look like oxycodone, making them true poison pills. One proposed solution is a vaccine that targets fentanyl. Just like you can train your immune system to recognize and attack a flu virus, immune cells can learn to recognize and detoxify the drug. This could offer protection against toxic effects of fentanyl in both recreational drug users and those whose professions put them at risk of accidental exposure. Fentanyl is so potent that police officers and first responders have overdosed by simply touching or inhaling a small amount of the drug. A new study by researchers at the University of Minnesota tested the vaccine in mice and rats. When the animals were given fentanyl, the immunization blocked both the pain-reducing effect and, more importantly, the amount of fentanyl that was able to get into the brain. This point is important because it's the action of opioids in the brain that caused the fatal respiratory depression. And the the vaccine did not affect the response to nelazone an anti-opioid drug used to rescue overdosers. 
This step might be an important one in controlling the opioid epidemic. The study was published last week in the Journal of Pharmacology and Experimental Therapeutics. The European Organization for Nuclear Research has recently released conceptual design plans to build what would be the world's largest particle collider with a, with a circumference of 100 kilometers, or 62 miles, four times bigger than its Large Hadron Collider, which it would replace. This new creation, called simply the Future Circular Collider, would be designed to create record new total collision energy of 100 trillion electron volts by accelerating particles to within just a few meters per second less than the speed of light for head-on collisions. Known by its non-English acronym CERN, or CERN, the European Organization for Nuclear Research has formulated these ambitious plans in the wake of a famous 2012 experiment using the Large Hadron Collider, which confirmed the existence of the elusive Higgs boson, earning the Nobel Prize for Physics in 2013. Proof of the existence of the Higgs boson was the final piece in a puzzle to establish what is known simply as the standard model of particle physics, a theory that attempts to explain, in one comprehensive model, all of the fundamental building blocks and forces which comprise known, exi known existence. Although considered wildly successful, the standard model does not generate an integrated model of how gravity comes to exist, and not surprisingly, physicists are eager to do more fundamental work. This work would require even higher energies than supplied by the Large Hadron Collider. Other intriguing fundamental questions that could be addressed with the help of the Future Circular Collider is why matter predominates over antimatter. Under current theories, each of those would be expected to exist in equal quantities. And now for a bit of history of science appreciation. On this day in 1561, 458 years ago, Sir Francis Bacon, the English philosopher and statesman, was born. Called the father of empiricism, Bacon's works are credited with developing the scientific method. You're listening to KGNU's Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. If you're like me, you feel a little less guilty throwing out fruits, vegetables, and other food that has gone bad in the fridge thanks to curbside recycling. After all, it doesn't go into landfills where it would spew methane and take up lots of space, and the compost can be made into a commercial product to apply to farms, grasslands, or gardens. Well, actually, it's a pretty nuanced story and a really important one. Our two guests today are working on getting composting right, and more broadly, on how to make our food and production and consumption systems far more sustainable. Dan Mach directs the compost department for EcoCycle, that's the nonprofit recycler that works with cities along the Front Range. He also directs EcoCycle's Center for Hard to Recycle Materials, known affectionately as CHARM. Dan joins us in the studio. Welcome to How on Earth, Dan. Good morning. Thank you. And we have Mark Easter, an ecologist at Colorado State University's Natural Resource Ecology Lab. He joins us via phone from Fort Collins. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. 
Hey, good morning. Glad to be here. Thanks to you both. So, Dan, Mach, I want to start with you, given your every day thinking of landfills and compost. Just describe briefly the journey of, say, rotten salad or other food that I toss into my bio bag and that gets tossed into the curbside bin. Uh, so your organic waste gets picked up by a hauler. Uh, depends um, who, that, who that hauler is, depends on where you live. Um, but um, all haulers in Boulder County are, um, they dump their uh, loads at a transfer station. And um, that organic waste is then transferred to another uh, larger truck that's more suited to going over the road because it then goes on a 52-mile journey to the middle of Weld County. 52 miles. Yes, mm -hmm. to a large commercial compost facility uh, where it joins all the other food waste that's collected on the Front Range. It's the only commercial compost facility that's permitted for food waste in this area. Um, so um, there, we have one compost facility for the whole Front Range at this moment. One facility, so that's Fort Collins, Denver, Boulder, you name it, the whole Front Range. Right. And it goes, wow, 52 miles in two steps. Correct. We'll yep. get into the sort of greenhouse gas trade-offs of that later. But, but briefly, why is there just one facility and, say, Boulder and Denver and Fort Collins don't have their own right now? And is that, is that problematic? Um, there, there was a private compost facility until fairly recently in Boulder. Um, it is a rather risky ven ven venture um, in that um, if it's not designed specifically for managing food waste and the odors that, that come from it, um, it tends to be um, fall into the NIMBY category, not in my backyard. Uh, people don't uh, love to see a compost facility. And, and the, the regulations, um, to an extent, are geared towards a really large commercial facility. So there's kind of a number of factors, um, but they, uh, the result is that right now the, um, the, the paradigm is that you have a, a giant, uh, you know, large compost facilities kind of in the middle of nowhere. And that's not unique to, um, to our area. That's, that's pretty much everywhere in the um, central United States. That's the, um, that's the situation. Well, and we'll get more to the policy side and sort of what the counties and cities might be doing a bit later. But first, just big picture. So in the whole food production consumption system, how much of our food is wasted, as in not used? Well, I I think that um, the stat is, if you include the um, uh, food that's left in the farmer's field, it's around 50%. Um, 50%, that's half of all crops food grown. Right. Gets wasted. Some of that diverted, of course, I mean, into compost, but 50%. Right. Um, in terms of what gets composted, um, it is... Um, it's obviously a fairly new thing. It, it depends on, uh, you know, every, every community um, in Boulder County, every, every city in Boulder County has a commercial, has a curbside collection program at this point. Um, and, and they all have their own rates. But for instance, uh, city of Boulder's uh, single family rate is that 22% uh, 20, of the organics in the uh, in the waste stream for a single family household in Boulder, 22% um, 
get recycled as compost? Only 22%. I'm and, sorry, 22% yeah. uh, is the... Uh, the total percentage of the um, of the of the waste stream that that is recovered. I'm sorry. Uh-huh. Um, so uh, a perfect score there would huh. be about forty percent. So a little bit better than half of of the organics uh, in Boulder um, generated by a single family house get collected. And the rest that's not, it's not because there's not curbside pickup, but just people aren't composting. Is that it? Right. Mm-hmm. And we can get to how things might be and, and could be shifting after. Mark Easter of Colorado State University, I want to turn to you since you're working so much in ag and carbon sequestration. Give us a big picture of what does composting have to do with climate change? What's the, the big food ag picture? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, when food gets thrown away, um, it ends up in a landfill, and it gets buried there. And before long, uh, the microbes that are in the landfill start to, to eat that, compo- or that uh, food waste, and it becomes methane, um, which is a really potent greenhouse gas. It can have uh, a single pound of methane can have somewhere between uh, 30 and 80 times the effect of a pound of carbon dioxide. So... A little bit of methane goes a long way, and despite, you know, um, heroic efforts to try and capture methane that's coming off of landfills, you just can't capture all of it. In fact, um, that process is notoriously inefficient. And so throwing the food away is a big source of greenhouse gases. What we find when the food gets captured and um, goes into the composting process rather than into the landfill, that the greenhouse gas benefits of doing that get amplified, get stacked up in a number of really positive ways. One of the biggest ones is that when you add compost to agricultural lands, you know, to pastures and to fields or to your garden or your lawn, um, a, a fair amount of the carbon, the organic matter that's in that compost, actually will stay in the soil. Um, it also, the remainder becomes food for, uh, for the soil organisms in the soil and, and um, increases the productivity of the soil, improves the soil health. Um, there's a number of other benefits as well, too. By adding that compost to the soil, um, you're adding a lot of nutrients that otherwise would have been wasted. Um, so nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, and other micronutrients that were present in the food uh, stay in the compost, and that becomes food for the growing crops of the pasture or for your garden. And by doing that, you can avoid having to uh, apply fertilizers uh, to grow those crops. Manufacturing fertilizers is requires a huge amount of energy, and the basic, the main feedstock for that is actually is methane, is what we call natural gas, and so. Uh, the product of uh, the, the fracking sites up and down the Front Range and in Wyoming and around the region here is actually a main feedstock for fertilizer. Interesting. So, so there are like three parts to that. I want to definitely get to the fertilizer bit and how sort of scalable is this. But I want to stay with methane for a bit because it's, 
it's the decomposition process, which will happen right. in the compost facility anyway. So what's the difference between methane emissions from, say, landfill, just not at high temperature, but all that organic matter breaking down, and methane emissions, say, from compost facilities, unless it's captured in some kind of capture process? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm glad you raised that. So, yeah, producing the compost, you do have methane emissions and a small amount of nitrous oxide emissions. The difference here is that um, there are ways to actually manage the composting process. So uh, by turning the piles frequently, um, carefully managing the temperature, the feedstocks going into it, you can actually minimize the amount of methane and, and other trace gases that come off that could warm the climate. Oh, so roughly and like what percentage of methane or, or, or what's the differential between methane from landfill and methane from compost? You know, it, it depends on where you are and what uh -huh. the process is, but uh, typically it can be like a quarter to a third in the composting process of what it would be coming out of a landfill. But um, the, the real answer there is we don't uh, we don't exactly know. We know how to manage, uh, or we're learning more about how to manage the composting process. We actually know relatively little about how to manage the, the process and the landfills other than just to keep the organic matter, keep the food and the yard waste out of the landfill. Interesting. And I see Dan Mates here of EcoCycle nodding in his head. You're working every day with landfill and composting. Um, what do you think here? Well, I think uh, conceptually, um, there's a the, there's a um, a night and day difference in that um, compost is an aerobic process; oxygen is added, um, and um, in landfilling, a lot of effort is made to make that an anaerobic process. You know, they have those compactors driving over all the trash, um, squishing all the air out of it. Um, so methane is generated um, as as part of an uh, as an anaerobic gas. Um, so, so if you, so the key is to keep your compost aerobic and that's what Mark's referring to. Got it. And are we, let's say is Boulder County and Front Range making much progress, Dan Mach, in getting more compost and more properly composted organic matter before we get into where does it go after that? Um, I, you know, I think Boulder and Boulder County is very receptive to um, the message that that organics shouldn't be in the landfill, um, and they are they're responding very well. So at least on the on the collection side, uh, we're actually um, you know all the all the programs are are all relatively new compared to um, how the recycling programs are, but they're um, but people respond very well. Mm, that's good, um, and I want to ask you both. Um, Mark Easter, you referred to this other benefit for climate change, and that is the carbon sequestration and using composting, potentially and actually, uh, to improve soil health and thus reduce inputs from synthetic natural gas-based fertilizer, say. So I want to, let's see, first talk to you, Mark Easter, and say what's going on, like what's being done with the compost that's being collected. Sounds good that there's at least that process, but it's only as good as, you know, doing something with it. And you're involved with the county in this carbon sequestration pilot project. Talk a bit about what's the mission and what's the history of it. Yeah, that's right. Um, 
Boulder County and also the city of Boulder have been um, very active in trying to find ways to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And um, one of the important stories um, in that whole process is that not only do we have to reduce emissions, but we have to start taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and storing it back in the earth. What we find is that um, scientists have found that about a third of the excess carbon dioxide that's in the atmosphere right now um, came from soil or came from trees because of deforestation. Uh-huh. And the, and the process of removing that from the atmosphere and getting it back in storage in the earth, it turns out agriculture is one of the most cost-effective ways to do that. And um, we've been working with uh, Boulder County and the city of Boulder to try and identify a series of practices that are, were, are integrated into what we call carbon farming. And composting is probably one of the biggest pieces of that. Um, it's combined with uh, reducing tillage, with planting cover crops, with applying fertilizers judiciously, um, and with uh, special techniques, and also planting trees in the form of windbreaks and shelter, ba- shelter belts and that sort of thing. So it sounds like the um, compost and the use of it is one element of this broad project. Give an example, like on the field, of what's being done with the compost from this the front range. Exactly, yeah. Um, so the, the county is um, funding a project where it's collaborating with um, the Marin Carbon Project in California to replicate experiments that are being done up and down the state of California, replicate those experiments here where we're applying compost to degraded rangelands here in Boulder County with the idea that that can help in the process of re- restoring those soils but also um, help kickstart uh, the system into storing more carbon in the soil than might be stored there without this sort of effect. So by degraded rangelands, you're not talking about farmlands with crops, that's another story, I guess, but with um, overly grazed areas that are pretty depleted. The soil is pretty depleted, so meaning that the alfalfa or whatever they would be growing or whatever the cattle would graze on is pretty scant. Yes, exactly, and, and it turns out one of the biggest um, one of the biggest issues with overgrazing is actually um, where uh, prairie dogs are confined into a small space, um, and they they tend to overgraze their uh, their area pretty significantly. Interesting. So, what are some at least preliminary results? What are you finding from this pilot project? We're just, we're just getting started right now. The results from California um, from initial experiments there indicate that the effect can be fairly significant. Um, we're also uh, working with uh, farmers in Boulder County to uh, implement what we're calling producer-based trials. It's basically trials for these carbon farming systems uh, with farmers and uh, ranchers in Boulder County who are interested in integrating these practices into a carbon farming system on their fields. And so we have uh, one trial in process uh, two others in the works, and with the and the, the county and the city have the plans to expand those to uh, multiple other farmers as in the coming years. Fascinating. Well, in future show, we'll, I really want to work more on uh, the carbon sequestration. We just have a minute left, Dan. Mitch, I want to ask you: um, There's a citizen science component of this that we can all get involved in, right? Tell us about that. There is. Um, this summer 
EcoCycle is launching a little citizen science uh, project. Uh, we call it the uh, Community Carbon Farming Campaign. Um, and the point is to try to um, get a, a place for non farmers to plug in to this idea and learn about carbon sequestration um, and learn about their own soil in their backyard, um, learn about the nutrient value of um, the um, produce that they might grow in their gardens. Um, so we are, we're just, we're just starting to launch that now. Um, and you can, if you want to participate in that, you can, you can contact us and uh, contact ecocycle.org. Uh, actually, I'll just give you my email okay. address. Uh, it's dan, D-A-N, at ecocycle with no hyphen, dot O-R-G. And, uh, and I'll get you on the list. Great. Well, fascinating. And we will continue this conversation both on the carbon sequestration and climate change front. But time's up now. So thank you so much. That was Dan Mach, director of EcoCycle's compost department and the Center for Hard-to-Recycle Materials, known as CHARM. And Mark Easter, an ecologist at Colorado State University's Natural Resource Ecology Lab. For more info and guidelines on curbside composting and how to hold a zero-waste event, for example, you can also go to ecocycle.org. Dan Mach, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. And Mark Easter, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Oh, and also I want to say on Thursday, January 31st, KGNU and EcoCycle will jointly host a special community conversation on plastic waste, another huge area of concern and potential. The event will include representatives from EcoCycle, the Inland Ocean Coalition, and local businesses and sustainability leaders. It will explore the challenges in recycling in different many different plastics and what individuals and businesses can do to reduce plastic waste in Boulder County. The event will be held at the Longmont Museum. Doors open at 6 o'clock in the evening on the 31st. The panel conversation will start at 6.30 and be followed by an open discussion and Q&A ending at 8 o'clock. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bennett. This week's show was produced by yours truly, Susan Moran, and engineered by Chip Granditz. Additional contributions from Beth Bennett. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Donald Byrd. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Chip Branditz. And I'm Susan Moran.